Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Did I just hear you say Bologna? No, I said Bologna. Did I say Bologna? (laughs) That's what I said. It was a long day. (laughs) You know, I have to tell you, that series, I'm hearing a lot yeah. about it. Uh, no, I'm every, hearing a lot of good things. Everybody loves Tucci. Um, but, you know, the magic is when somebody tells you the story of a people through their passions. And obviously, one of the immutable truths, uh, as Mike Nichols once told me, the famous director and producer we both knew well, uh, one of the immutable truths is that everybody loves Italian food. So uh, Stanley showing how it really is part of our culture. Yeah. You know, as Italians, Italian-Americans, you really wind up dealing with each other and dealing with moments and dealing with rituals through food. Yeah. So he, they're doing a beautiful job. But I loved hearing you say that. <laughs> so what would you be eating in Bologna? <laughs> Don't you have a show? Don't you have something to do? I do. But who wants to pass up a chance to talk to you? Have a great weekend. Right, Thanks, as always, Bye. Anderson. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. There really is more light ahead of us now than darkness. There will be tough times. We're not out of this, but there is cause for hope. The FDA is on the verge of authorizing a third COVID shot for emergency use. That means we get to use it now. Now, you know the talk about the Johnson & Johnson one. It's a single dose vaccine, okay? So J&J got the advisory panel's approval tonight. So it could be going in arms as soon as next week. The other plus of this is, so it's one shot, doesn't need to be stored as cold as other things, right? So you can keep it a little bit more easily. You waste less of it. It's good. And it has held up well on most present variants. Look, you have to be careful about these things. They know it's safe, but they don't know everything. So from the president, we heard both optimism and caution about the road ahead the third vaccine to make even more rapid progress in getting shots in people's arms. Cases and hospitalizations could go back up with new, as new variants emerge. And it's not the time to relax. We have to keep washing our hands, staying socially distanced, and for God's sake, wear your mask. Oof, lucky he isn't at CPAC. You get stoned for speaking science of what has become the Trump trunk show where former conservatives have turned into conspiracy junkies with a demagogue as their dealer. Many of the lawmakers that are at CPAC are actually skipping out on the House debate tonight that's going on right now for pandemic relief. Talk about choosing politics over your duty to people. Why the GOPQ debates who loves Trump the most. Tonight, the House is expected to debate and vote on President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. Now, Democrats are the inside story here. They are moving forward, it seems, but the minimum wage could still prove to be a major sticking point of division in that party. Speaker Pelosi says they will not rest until a $15 minimum wage gets passed. But I don't see how that gets passed as part of this. Why? The Senate parliamentarian, 
okay? That is the person that decides what meets the rules in the Senate for different procedures. They say the minimum wage doesn't pass the test to be included in what is called reconciliation, which is a shortcut process that Democrats are using to avoid a filibuster by the right. House Democrats, House Democrats, on the loud left flank, they say, no, Madam Vice President, reject the parliamentarian as your role as the president of the Senate. The White House says, no, we're not going to do that. We want to stick by tradition. So how does that play on the left? Democrats say, well, maybe we'll try to add it on as an amendment. Not likely to pass. So assuming the left can make peace with one another about the minimum wage, even without the wage hike, this bill would be a huge boost in direct aid to small businesses, another round of direct payments, $1,400 in a check to those making less than 75 grand a year, $2,800 for couples making less than 150 grand a year, families with kids. You would be eligible for an additional $1,400 per dependent. There's also additional help for the unemployed, hungry, the uninsured, among other funding. Now, it is important to note that absent from the voting, I know I said it, but think about it. We are in the middle of a pandemic. They have delayed help for a long time. And the House is going to be minus a dozen members from the right. They all signed letters saying they can't attend due to the ongoing public health emergency, meaning the pandemic. It's a lie because they're at CPAC. If there's an ongoing health emergency, why is it okay for them to be there? They're just lying because that's okay in their ranks. Senator Ted Cruz, in the middle of a pandemic, talking to this crowd, listen to what he says. Now they're saying everybody can get immunized. We can have herd immunity everywhere, and we're going to wear masks for the next 300 years. And by the way, not just one mask, two, three, four. You can't have too many masks. How much virtue do you want to signal? This is just dumb. Agreed. What he is saying is just dumb. It's actually more than that because he's not a dumb guy. For Senator Ted Cruz and an emerging number on his side, it's not about ignorance. It's arrogance. He actually believes that this is the way to go. Play to the lie. Play to the division. Mock science. Mock safety. Look in the face and laugh of what got us here. He's echoing the same nonsense that harnessed the denial that led us into the depths of this problem. You know why? His goal is to sound just like this guy. When you have 15 people and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero, uh, that's a pretty good job we've done. We're going down, not up. We're going very substantially down, not up. But we have it so well under control. Now, remember, it's not that it was early. It was a lie. It was wrong, and he knew it. That's why the faces behind them were always the interesting ones to watch, right? Everybody like this. Because they all knew it was a lie. That was the past, but you have to remember it because if you don't learn the lesson, you make the mistake again.
as we see with Cruz right now. However, he's not in control, which means that doing the right things for a period and having a rollout for the vaccine is helping get the pandemic under control. Because look, 15 cases balloon to nearly 30 million, half a million lives gone, half a million families broken, unable to mourn, largely forgotten. We didn't have our first memorial until just a week ago. You must remember the pain and the loss. And now there is some hope for a brighter future ahead if we do the right things. So let's bring in the better minds, Manu Raju and Van Jones. So Manu, that's good on the vaccine. The fight that we're watching is on this uh, pandemic relief battle. What is the state of play in the House right now? We're expecting a pretty late night, a very late night. This could stretch into past midnight in 1 a.m., 2 a.m. on the east to pass this bill. We do expect it to pass very narrowly. The Democrats have a very small majority here, and they need a majority of members who are present and voting to pass this bill. And that means, according to the number three Republican Democrat House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, they could only lose three votes total. And we expect they probably may lose one, if not two, maybe even three, but that's it. But still, the Democratic leaders are confident. They say they have the votes. They believe they will get it through. And despite the concerns about the Senate parliamentarians ruling that this will be stripped out, this $15 minimum wage will be stripped out, they are still including that in this bill because their party, mostly on the mm. left, are pushing this and are strongly behind the $15 minimum wage. So that will be part of this larger $1.9 trillion package that affects virtually all aspects of the economy. But then the tough part will begin after this very narrow vote when the Senate will strip that out and they'll have to figure out whether they can get 50 votes in the Senate to get it through. And then 50-50 Senate, they need 50 Democrats to join hands and vote with this, for this. And Kamala Harris, the vice president, breaking that tie, getting it through the Senate next week, and all in the anticipation and hope for the Democrats to get this done by March 14th. And that's the date, Chris, when so many people's jobless benefits yeah. are set to expire. So a lot, not much time here, but Democrats are confident they can get it through, but just on their own, because Republicans are going to vote en masse against this. They're not even voting. They're not even there. But let's not rush past this step, because this is a real battle. Uh, as Manu has heard, I'm sure, Van, you too, and me, some on the left flank feel that they've been duped, that the Senate uh, let this happen. They knew it would go this way. They're not really fighting. They're not doing what they could. Let's listen to a couple of voices on the left about how they feel about the politics of this minimum wage. Well, the president was also disappointed in that outcome. He supports a $15 minimum wage. He supported it for many years. He believes it's critical and that nobody in this country should work full time and live in poverty. So uh, he was also disappointed in the outcome, but he respects the Senate's process. Democrats are unified about raising the minimum wage. And if we can't do it through a reconciliation bill, we'll figure out another way to do it. There may be things in this reconciliation bill that we can do to set the stage. This is an advisory opinion from the parliamentarian. Um, there is precedent in our history. Uh, Vice President Hubert Humphrey disregarded the parliamentarian's advisory opinion twice. Voters are not going to understand if we go back and in two years and say, you know what, uh, there's a there's a parliamentarian who told us we couldn't do it. So I'm sorry we couldn't deliver what we promised. So, Van, where do you come down on this and where do you think it ends up? Well, look, I, I think that uh, the progressives are correct 
in that it is very, very hard. This is why people voted. People crawled through broken glass, voted in the middle of a pandemic, stood in long lines. People worked incredibly hard to get the Democrats a majority of uh, black voters, young voters, progressive voters. And uh, I think it's suicide for this party not to do everything it can to deliver on the stuff that's going to make a long-term difference. Obviously, this package is needed, but the reality is in two years, uh, the checks that are coming will have been spent. And what do you then say to uh, a midterm Democratic Party base if you haven't fought to the last dog barks to deliver on some of this more structural stuff? Uh, Americans have not gotten a raise uh, in more than a generation. 50, you know, we're at $7 an hour. It doesn't make any sense. So I do think that this is not just progressives trying to be woker than now. I think that this is a big, it's broadly popular in both parties um, and it's needed in red states and blue states. I don't think that, that uh, progressives should just roll over on this one because I think they're speaking for the majority of Americans, not just for the woke left. 56 percent in the most recent poll says they believe in a minimum wage. Manu, how um, much echo effect is there to the words of Representative Jayapal? What is the chance that the left flank will say, no, you know what? You're not getting our votes because think, we vote on this bill. You're sending it over there. You know it's DOA. So I think very, I think very little, Chris. Why? It, the, the, because they know that there are so many other things in this bill that they view is, is very significant and central to getting this economy back going, whether it's money for state and local governments, whether it's $1,400 in relief checks for individuals under a certain income threshold, whether it's extending jobless benefits, nutrition assistance, and the like. There are so many provisions in this massive proposal that they can't afford to just simply sink it over the $15 minimum wage. And in the Senate, there just is not the, enough support in order to get this through. There is, as uh, Congresswoman Jayapal is saying, that Certainly, there's precedent in the Senate to overturn the ruling of the Senate parliamentarian, but that has not been done since 1975. And senators on both sides are very reticent in going down that path because it could create chaos in the way the Senate operates. And on top of that, you have the more immediate problem. If they were to take that route, overrule the parliamentarian, then you could probably, you're probably going to cost you the votes on the back end for of, uh, Senator Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who will vote against the bill because this parliamentary maneuver was done. So there simply is no path to getting the $15 minimum wage. Now, there is some talk, though, Chris, about some incentives to penalize companies uh, and tax them if they do not provide a $15 minimum wage for their employees. Chuck Schumer, Bernie Sanders, Ron Wyden are all talking about that as an amendment, but that still runs into the same problems yeah. within the Democratic Party, getting enough support, and also does it pass the rules. Um, Van, the importance of this issue uh, to people who think like you within your party was made clear to me today. Somebody said, look, I don't have to tell it to you. Stevie sung it to you. And they were talking to me about living for the city that Stevie Wonder wrote in 1973. The, the lyrics <laughs> of the key part uh, are on the, you know the song, I know the song. Um, but, you know, his father works some days for 14 hours and you can bet he barely makes a dollar. His mother scrubs floors for many and you best believe she hardly gets a penny living just enough, just enough for the, for the city, about kids whose clothes are clean, but they don't have much, who are stressed, who don't see any better days. And we all know how that song ends with people getting caught up in the game uh, and winding up victims of circumstance. They say that's just as real today. And if the Democrats don't do something about it, and I don't know how you can claim you did if you didn't do the minimum wage, you're not keeping your promise. I, I, I can't argue with Stevie Wonder. I can't argue with you. Listen, 
this is a big deal. There is real pain at the bottom for both parties. Uh, people want to be able to work and they want to be able to earn their way out of poverty and you need the rules to do that. And so um, I, I don't know what the options are. Obviously, it's tough to see progressives want to blow up the whole deal. But if, if we don't show backbone and strength and resolve, you know, I'm always for the people at the bottom, folks in prison, folks who are working hard and don't have anything. And this is one of those issues that it, it really it, it's, it's this is not just politics. This is this is this is real people's lives on the line right now. Mano, you're smart as hell, but you're too young to really embrace that song. You got you, you got to <laughs> get religion on it. What are you and talking about? You got to listen to it, when, especially when the guy says, New York City, just like I pictured it. Manu Raju, Van Jones, God bless. Have a good weekend and thank you. All right, the big news on this third COVID vaccine uh, matters. It's on the verge of approval. We don't want to get ahead of it, but all the indications are it's moving the right way. Johnson & Johnson, one and done. The efficacy rate is not as high as the other two brands in the testing phase. What is the difference? What does it matter? And the big question is, what does this vaccine mean for variants? Sanjay, next. Good news Friday. You don't hear that too often. Why? Well, we have taken another step closer to a third vaccine in the United States after an FDA panel recommended it for emergency use. We need to take it uh, in with other encouraging trends. Like what? Well, vaccine numbers overall are getting really ramping up by a multi-factor. Okay, so they are ahead of their 100 million doses in 100 days rate. 75 percent of the 94 million doses so far have been administered. That means, as you see down there, about 7% of the population already fully vaccinated. I, I know that's not where we need to be, but it's much farther along than we were two months ago, if you think about it. Vaccine hesitancy going down. Now at 55% among US adults, up from 34% in December. 34% said, yeah, I want it. Now it's over half. Do we have to do work on that? Yes, especially in the hardest hit communities. And that's a problem we're not really dealing with yet. As you go down the socioeconomic scale, people are more hesitant about the vaccine. They're getting less attention. They're getting less supply. And that's going to be a problem. Know that now. COVID cases, dramatic decline. Hospitalizations, down. Deaths, down. Could this be the beginning of the end? Sanjay Gupta joins me now. Good to see you, Doc. Uh, let's start macro, get to micro. Macro. Is this a real move towards baseline of no more pandemic, or is it just a temporary lull? Uh, you get right to it, Chris. I mean, that, that, is, the, that is the question. I think that we, the, my, my guess is that the, the metrics that matter will continue to go down. Uh, people are concerned, and I think understandably so, about these variants in terms of overall case numbers potentially going up again. You know, they've plateaued, right? They've been going down. They sort of plateaued. I don't think that's because of the variants yet, because when we look at the variants around the country, maybe 10% of the country, uh, you know, has, has, you see these variants. Florida's the highest, 20%. So I don't think that's what it is so far. I think some of it's the surge that, you know, came off the holidays and things like that. That's sort of starting to flatten out. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens to these numbers over the next month. But what we're going to look for, and I think we've been saying this all year now, Chris, is the lagging indicators, hospitalizations, and the tragic deaths. What I think is we're not gonna see the proportional increase in hospitalizations and deaths, and that's gonna be the good news. 
So even if the cases go up, if the hospitalizations don't go up proportionally, that's going to be a really important indicator, Chris. The J&J single shot, assuming it gets authorization, they say it could happen next week, it could start getting in there. How soon until you see it make an impact on herd immunity? Uh, you know, it, it, that may take a while because, you know, uh, somewhat surprisingly, they're, they're going to only have about three to four million doses that are coming out right away. They say 20 million by the end of next month, end of March. So, you know, uh, that, that'll make an impact. If you, if you look sort of uh, in the April time frame, you're talking about uh, 220 million shots between Moderna and Pfizer. That'd be 110 million people and maybe 20 million more shots from Johnson & Johnson, which would be 20 million people. So that's 130 million. It's still not herd immunity. But the thing is, Chris, I got to tell you, herd immunity is this thing everyone pays attention to, but that's not that important sort of a switch. You're going to see improvements all along. So will, will, will Johnson & Johnson make an impact right away? Probably not, but it'll make an impact earlier than sort of mid to end of summer when we will reach herd immunity. How much uh, does the mask mocking that we're seeing from Ted Cruz and the other geniuses uh, right now on the right, how big of a mitigator effect is that to our progress? If they keep pushing that mask is a nonsense thing, is, you know, they're just overboard on the left. Look, it's, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, Chris, the, the, the thing is that <clears throat> if you leave aside the vaccines and the monoclonal antibodies and all the things that we're spending tons of money on, billions of dollars, Masks alone, especially high filtration masks in, in, in riskier situations when you're around a lot of people, for example, would probably work faster and, and more completely than even the vaccine would. I mean, there are people who say that it could essentially bring this pandemic to an end in four weeks if people wore high filtration masks when they were in public like that. Ugh. You know, I, look, we've been saying that all along. We are, we are the home run nation, right? We like the touchdowns, the home runs, the knockout punches. That's the vaccine. I get it. But it also means we don't lean into the basics, and the basics are really important. I mean, a lot of countries around the world that are doing so well, they don't have vaccines. They didn't have vaccines when they were doing so well. It was the masks. So the fact that we still mock it is so painful because it could be helpful now, but it also really makes me think we didn't learn one of the most valuable lessons for, that, for later. Let's put up the uh, efficacy, uh, full screen number three, efficacy one month after vaccination. Um, so moderate to severe versus severe only. Uh, you see Pfizer's two doses, two doses for Moderna. Uh, 66, should people be worried about the difference in efficacy one month after vaccination with the single shot versus the other two? Well, you know, Chris, I mean, when, when you look at the, so if you look at the right side of the screen now, I mean, the idea that 85% protective against severe disease. Um, I think that's critically important. And, and no hospitalizations or deaths at a month out uh, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's really we're the key, at right? Vaccines that are, that, well, so that means that you may still get sick, but you're not going to get that sick and you're not going to die. Literally zero. Yeah. I mean, and look, I don't want to minimize moderate illness. I mean, it can be pretty bad for some people. I mean, you, you, you my friend, know as well. But but the severe illness, the, the hospitalizations, the deaths, that's the sort of thing. Like my parents both got vaccinated. They're in their late 70s. They're in southern Florida. Um, they were worried for a year. Uh, they might get sick. They might have to go to the hospital. They were worried about that. And if they went on a breathing machine, they knew the odds were going to be against them. They wake up in the morning now not having to worry about that. So regardless of whether it's the Johnson & Johnson or the other two, I really do think that's the key. So the time frame now, based on Fauci and your same calculations, if things hold, 
you know, late spring into the summer, you'll start seeing big numbers uh, here of people who have uh, a big degree of protection. And we'll see where that takes us. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, appreciate you. Have a good weekend to the extent that you yeah, have a great weekend. You too. All right. So CPAC, why am I talking about it? Because it is the laboratory for the pain to come in this process. They won't even vote on the pandemic bill tonight in the House because they would rather be at the church of Trump. No matter what he does to that party, no matter how he splinters off what used to be the Republican Party, they are pushing his big lie at an annual conservative gathering. Do you remember the party of character counts? A new segment for you tonight to boast, bust open some of the lowlights as Michael Smirkanish and I will debate right and wrong. What is working for them or is it really working? Next. For conservatives, what used to be conservatives at CPAC, 2024 can't come soon enough. They want to start right now. What does that tell you about the level of cooperation you'll see in Congress, even on the pandemic? Well, here's your answer. A dozen of them didn't even show up to vote on the bill tonight. Senators Hawley, Cruz, they're making clear that Trumpism is the future of the party. Lies about rigged elections are the order of the day. It's all over the place. That's why I wanted to bring in my friend and mentor, Michael Smirkanish. Let's take a look at what they're doing. Well, it's true. Let's take a look at what they're doing and why it makes sense for them or not. Number one, keep pushing the big lie. Exhibit eight. You know, on January the 6th, I objected during the Electoral College certification. Maybe you heard about it. I stood up. And I said, I said, we ought to have a debate about election integrity. The reason that people stormed the Capitol was because they felt hopeless because of a rigged election. Democrats, not Republicans, installed ballot drop boxes on sidewalks where nobody oversaw them. How many fraudulent ballots got deposited in these boxes unchecked and then got counted? Who knows? Why does this work? So what's most offensive to me is Josh Hawley. And I have to say this, Chris, because as you know, the expression, all politics are local. He said at CPAC today that he was fighting for the rule of the people. Well, I'm the people. Five people under my roof as Pennsylvanians voted lawfully by absentee ballot. He wanted to disenfranchise us. What's most galling is that he kept with that plan even after the events of January 6th turned violent. This all now transcends the typical left-right debate over ideology and issues. We're talking about the rule of law being threatened and the ability to conduct elections lawfully in the future going forward. I mean, I worry about 2022. I'm sure you do. I worry about 2024 because they're just refusing to accept the result of an election despite the whole record. That's the play, though. The play is chaos. And they feel the same way about the rule of law that you do. They're saying that you're the problem because you rigged it. All five of you in that Smirconish household, you cheated. You cheated because you don't believe in the party anymore. So you wanted to kill Trump. And it is us or them existential trial by combat. And that's what they're teeing up, which is why he gave the power fist to a bunch of people who would then become part of the insurrection. That's your party. Right. So what 
So what court judgment, what adjudication of the they never gave it a chance. so that there no were? No evidentiary hearings. What, they never gave us a chance. You right. shut it down. You rigged it. You know that that's all. I know you're too smart for this, and I appreciate the role that you're playing. But the Middle District of Pennsylvania heard their evidence. That was the court where Rudy Giuliani had to face the judge and say, no, we're not asserting fraud. That which they were saying under the glare of lights was totally different from what they were saying in courtrooms. And that's what the record shows. And so many real Republicans, so many real conservatives. I had Matt Schlapp on earlier in the week. Left killed me. Killed me. And I say, bring it on. Because conservatives and smirconishes said, you know what? I just want you to know that guy's not speaking for me. I just want you to know that that guy, I don't know why he's in charge of CPAC. I don't know what's happening over there, but that's not me. I'm telling you, and that makes it worth it because those are the only minds that you can hope to change and bring back to reasonable. Okay. Proof number two, exhibit B of, no, this is all about chaos and that you guys, everything you say is crazy sauce. Ted Cruz, one of the smartest guys in the Senate, says this about masks. Now, I want to understand how this virus works. So when you walk in, you got to put your mask on. Sadly, I've got two. You walk in, you got to put your mask on. You sit down, you take your mask off. See, apparently the virus is actually connected to elevation. No, no, remember, this is all about science. It's actually, it may not be elevation. I think it's, it, it's that there are hormones that are released in your thighs when you're sitting. So you can sit at the table and there's no virus being transmitted. But if you stand up, put the mask on! In truth, he's better as a comedian than as a politician. To be honest, his face alone is funny. And he said, you know, you have to wear four masks. For him, that is true, because it's one for every face he's shown to the public. You know, he's a constitutionalist. Now he's a renegade, chaotic person. But this, they're lying to you. You never needed a mask. And the proof is it makes no sense how they have you use it. Effect. So here's the reason this one's appalling. It's appalling because that mask that he's being asked to wear isn't for him, it's for you, and it's for me, and it's for everyone with whom he comes in contact. That mask is so that he doesn't infect us. He's arguing today at CPAC for his right to infect you and me. And I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the Tea Party at the time of the Affordable Care Act having been proposed when the Gadsden flags were all raised, don't tread on me, people thumping on their chests about individual freedom and liberty. What were they fighting for? They were fighting for their right not to be insured so that they could then show up in an ER without insurance and burden you and burden me because we're responsible and we have insurance. It's completely illogical and and it's actually at odds with the individual freedom that they maintain they're arguing for. It is fundamental though to a disinformation campaign. Up is down. Right. And everything is, you know, Orwell fell short, as it turns out, on what doublespeak was. Um, They've always been lying to you. Everything they say is a lie. And if you don't agree with me, and now here's the last one. I want to skip and go to point four. And this is the capper on it that shows you what that party is now going to be. Not only is the left crazy, but anybody who is not down with Trump and the perversity that's coming out of my face right now is the enemy, even if they say they're a Republican. Listen. And the media desperately, desperately, desperately wants to see a Republican civil war. John Boehner made some news. He suggested that I do something that was anatomically impossible. 
To which my response was, who's John Boehner? Speaking of bombing the Middle East, have you seen Liz Cheney's poll numbers? <laughs> What's true in Florida is true for conservatives across the nation. We cannot, we will not go back to the days of the failed Republican establishment of yesteryear. So we're making up the Civil War and then they attack other Republicans, you know, in succession. This is where they are. I really believe the question has been answered about where the party is going. And you just saw it, the good, the bad and the ugly. Brace yourself. I think I'm with Cruz on this one. I mean, to the, to the extent that he is saying there is not a civil war within the Republican Party, I think the civil war is over. I think there's already been surrender. Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney and even Mitch McConnell, they just don't have the juice. The enthusiasm for the, the base is all playing itself out in Orlando, and that's the concentration that then will drive primary voters. So to the extent he's saying we're trying to gin up a civil war, he might be right. Except that wasn't his point. His point was that there is no division. Your point is there's division. It's just ended. It's over. You now basically have a three-party system. We'll see what kind of legs real Republicans can get underneath them. Michael Smirkanish, as always, we benefit from your insight. I wish you a good weekend, brother. I'll see you on TV. You too. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Tonight, questions following the U.S. airstrikes in Syria. This is the first known military action taken by President Biden. There was no congressional approval. Is that okay? This is not a matter of how you feel. It's a matter of law. Now, I think it is wrong for presidents to take power from Congress, even if Congress is willing to throw it to them because they don't want to own any hard votes. We have a former member of Congress who is also a former defense secretary to talk to us about what this meant, what we saw in the Trump administration, and what the right way is. Next. How does the United States of America decide whether or not to use military action? Well, by what we've seen in recent years, the president decides, does it. And if it's going to be a really long time, at some point he thinks about talking to Congress and they usually will kind of give him a nod without actually debating or having a vote. Is that the right way? Nothing's for free. Even if it was drones, even there were people in the region, we have people there. There's civilians, there are contractors, there are people there. And what if these kinds of actions lead to more military engagement? Men and women who have courage that I don't, putting their lives at risk for the rest of us. Now, technically, for the first 160 plus years, we followed the straight constitution. The presidents prepare to make war, then make the case to Congress, and your representatives vote on whether or not to do it. Then came Korea and the Cold War. Takes us to 1973. Congress didn't like exactly what's happening now, by the way, tried to take its power back, passed a law called the WPA, the War Powers Act, narrowed the parents' ability, the president's ability to act. The president can do it if there is an imminent threat on U.S. people or interests. And that interest, boy, boy, did that get loosely interpreted. Only one president, Gerald Ford, has ever bothered to even file the necessary report that you're supposed to, to engage the War Powers Act as president. So last night's so-called proportional response may have been the right thing to do because they were killing people that we care about, but was it imminent? 
Was it on our people? How was it in our interests? The contractors? Okay, maybe. Shouldn't have somebody made the case? Was it like that when Trump took out Soleimani? Was that imminent? It isn't now either, is it? The problem isn't that Biden or Trump or even Obama or Bush or Clinton, they all did it this way. They had power that used to and is supposed to reside with Congress. You see, we're still operating under a pair of authorizations for the use of military force, AUMF, from 2001 and 2002. They're almost two decades old and they justify fighting terror. But we've had 41 million operate, 41 million, God forbid, 41 military operations in 19 countries. Is it really all about terrorism that stemmed from 9-11? The threat that we attacked last night, Iranian-backed militias in Syria who bombed in Baghdad. Those people didn't even exist when the AUMF was written. Now, I could point out that Biden seemed to understand this before he was in the Oval Office, just like we did with Trump's tweets, right? Take a look. The reality is whomever is in the office and whatever letter is by their name, R or D, they're going to use the power they have unless Congress gets in their way. And Congress doesn't do that because they don't want to own a vote ever since they took the one to go to Iraq on bad intel about yellow cake and they got hurt and they don't want to do that anymore. Let's discuss with someone who understands the issue much better and understands the considerations much better. Uh, Senator, Secretary of Defense under Clinton, Secretary William Cohen. Good to have you back, sir. Good to be with you. Now, to give myself a chance in a debate that I am not on even footing, uh, I just want to play what Congressman Schiff, Chairman Schiff of the Intel Committee, uh, said about Biden interfacing with the Gang of Eight um, before they did this and his feeling about it. Here, sir. Technically, yes, we were given advance notification, but it was done in such a manner that it wasn't meaningful no, uh, notification. And so we have gone back to the administration and, and we're going to try to make sure that where it's necessary in the future that we get uh, more effective notice in advance. Okay. Why is it okay? Well, I think he's right uh, that they need uh, a bit more advanced notice. And the purpose of the notice is so that people, a limited group of people, the big eight, so to speak, uh, can have a, an opportunity to talk to the commander in chief uh, to give perhaps a different perspective on uh, whether or not a military force should be used under those circumstances. Uh, the commander in chief uh, feels that if he has to act uh, at an appropriate time that uh, he cannot share all of the details with the big eight. And I, I understand that. I've been on both sides of the issue. But I want to go back because there was a vote taken uh, back during the, the, the first war in the Gulf. And that's when President Bush 41 was about to send 500,000 troops uh, into the Gulf. Uh, and President Bush at that point felt that he only needed uh, UN uh, authorization. And I know that I made the, the case on the floor and with him personally that, no, he had to come to the United States Congress to get authority to do that because we didn't swear allegiance to the UN, but to the United States Constitution. And he did. He was afraid initially he wouldn't get the votes. And so he was going to go around it until he had to face up to the responsibility of saying, no, uh, you're making a big commitment here and you have to have us with you now on this takeoff. Because if this goes wrong, it's all on you without us and we're coming after you. So he made the right decision and we made the right decision to go after Saddam Hussein to drive him out of Kuwait. 
So that was one case in which Congress said, yes, we want to be on board here. We're willing to take the responsibility that comes with it. Since that time, though, Congress has very little influence over the executive. Uh, we can, uh, we, when I was a congressman or a senator, we could cut off funds not likely. We could try to restrict uh, what the president could do when uh, circumstances called for imminent action. Uh, so basically, Congress has given up that authority over the years. And as a member of the cabinet, uh, I was quite you know, not happy about it, but I understood that I was with the commander in chief. I wanted more flexibility to take action. But I also understood I spent 24 years on the Hill and I understood why it's really important that you have members who are also elected to a co-equal right. branch who are going to be supporting the men and women who are going off to fight. They have to be part of it. So I think Adam Schiff is right. You need more notice than they got. And I, uh, I hope that uh, President Biden will uh, do that in the future. But, uh, but you, I think it. Yeah, go ahead. You, you understand the policy and, and law um, better than I, but it is not a, it's not a notice provision. That is a workaround. Him going to the Gang of Eight is not in the War Powers Act. It's not in the AUMF. Um, it's just an accommodation. I'm going to give you a heads up that this is what I'm going to do and this is why I'm going to do it. The mechanism is if it's not imminent to our interest or our people, you have to come to us and let us debate it and say whether or not we're supposed to do it. That's the way it's supposed to work. And we've had an extra, you know, an extra legislative change here where you've just given the Congress, just given them the power to do it. My fear is it's never for free, secretary. So there's going to be escalation. Things are going to happen. Eventually, there are going to be men and women in the way of lead that's flying around. Um, and I don't you think that they should have to stand up and be counted in Congress if people's lives are going to be on the line? I do, but you come back to the issue of imminent. What is imminent? When are our, our forces, our interests in danger? Uh, in uh, the Iranian militia attacking uh, uh, the green zone, attacking some of our, our contractors or military personnel, uh, you want to then go back to the Congress and say, by the way, I'm thinking of kind of responding here to make sure they don't continue to do this for the next 10 days. Do you want to have that as part of a debate in Congress? Or rather, would you put that in the hands of Congress saying the big eight, we think you represent your, 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 your parties and your interests. We want you to know we're about to do this. If you have real problems on this, speak up. If you don't, we're going to go do it because we have to protect our people and our interests in that region right now. Now, Adam Schiff said he doesn't have enough information about it. He doesn't know whether it was imminent or not. He doesn't know if it's the right target. Now, I happen to believe uh, that Secretary Austin knows the right target because he spent most of his life as central command or in central command mm -hmm. and knows exactly what's going on and where the interests are that the Iranians are using to make sure they don't target our people, and our personnel in the region. So we have more information to get. We need to know more with more specificity about how imminent it was, whether better notice right. or more notice given to the Congress, but it should be. I hear you. Otherwise, they got to change the law uh, instead of just giving up their power. They either do their job or don't do their job or change their job. Secretary William Cohen, thank you so much for your perspective on a Friday night. Appreciate you and be well. Thanks, Chris. We'll be right back. Something you want to hear right after this. You know, they're at CPAC rallying themselves up to make sure that Trump gets as good a start on the next election as possible. Well, remember his legacy. It's not just a pandemic that dragged on because of his investment in our denial of the reality, but it's January 6th. And no matter what they don't say, no matter how much they ignore, no matter how they try to blame it on somebody else, all their cries about being about police and caring about law and order 
or BS after that day and there's silence thereafter. There were killers in that crowd that attacked our Capitol. We have breaking news in the race to solve who is responsible for Officer Brian Sicknick's death. We cannot lose sight of the human price that was paid on that day. Sources tell CNN the FBI has identified a suspect who may have been captured on video attacking several officers with bear spray. As we've reported, the working theory is that Sicknick was among those exposed to it in a big amount, and he had a deadly reaction. The New York York Times reports that there is also evidence the person talked about using the chemical to attack others ahead of time. We will stay on this. Part of our coverage, of course, is watching CNN tonight with the Friday Night Upgrade, a.k.a. Laura Coates Esquire. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.